It is thoroughly autumn here in northern Michigan, so the leaves are a little past their prime, which means a lot of them have already fallen to the ground. The sound of crunching leaves underfoot is an irresistible public radio classic, and a sure sign of the changing seasons. But did anyone else notice the trees looked particularly splendiferous this year? We'll find out why that might be the case this week on the Up North Lowdown from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Max Copeland, and I'll be your host this week as IPR's Izzy Ross takes us to the high rollaway observation deck in Kingsley to learn how climate change can affect fall colors. But first, we'll learn about a gathering of experts paying close attention to the freshwater ecosystems of the Great Lakes region. Scientists and ecologists who pay close attention to the Great Lakes have been worried about invasive species for decades, and they're trying to find ways to control their spread. That was front of mind at a freshwater summit in Traverse City recently, so IPR's environment reporter Ellie Katz went there, and now she's here to tell us more about it. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Max. So who are these people, and why are they here? Yeah, they're mostly industry professionals, researchers, scientists, a few local residents who are interested in this kind of stuff. Uh, And they were mainly there to talk about the health and future of freshwater, um, mainly water quality and invasive species, like you mentioned. So invasive species is something that should not be here, but it's living here anyway. And it usually causes damage to the local ecosystem. So can you give us an example of an invasive species? I think the most well-known invasive species are probably quagga and zebra mussels. Uh, But there's also lesser-known threats here that you don't hear as much about. Things like Eurasian water milfoil, which is an invasive aquatic plant um, that crowds out native plant species and is kind of icky to swim through and drive your boat through. It's mainly a problem on inland lakes here. Yeah, zebra mussels I hear about all the time, but the milfoil... I've literally never heard of before this conversation. Um, what What's being done about it? So a biologist and a diver from Lake Leelanau Lake Association actually talked about what they're doing about it um, on Lake Leelanau at the summit. And they have the results from the first few years of using biodegradable burlap barriers. They're lowering these massive pieces of burlap down to the lake bed, and they're weighing them down with sandbags, almost like a sheet on the lake bed. And what that does is it kind of chokes out the Eurasian water milfoil. It prevents it from getting sunlight, and it has pretty effectively stopped it from growing in the places where they've experimented with this. And it's burlap, so it ostensibly is going to be uh, biodegradable, right? Yeah, that's yeah. That's the idea, at least. That's that's the idea. They're, um, they're working on this with the Grand Traverse Band of Ottawa and Chippewa Indians, and it's a non-chemical control of Eurasian water milfoil. Um, And that's why they're really excited about the burlap because it's not treated synthetically, it's pure burlap, and the idea is that it won't release chemicals into the water and they're not using something like a pesticide in the water. So they lower this piece of burlap, it kills all the Eurasian milfoil, but it sounds like it's probably going to kill everything. So what happens to all the other plants that are also growing at the bottom of the lake floor? They've actually seen kind of a cool comeback of certain native plants. And the way they explain this is that Eurasian water milfoil mainly reproduces by fragmenting and then kind of shooting off of that fragment. A lot of native aquatic plant species have built this seed bank in the top layers of the lake sediment. And so that seed bank is still there kind of dormant underneath this burlap layer. And now that they're not crowded out as much, they've seen some of these native plant species spring up through the burlap. 
That is so cool. Could there be more efforts like this, though? It's it's not broadly allowed right now. This is an experiment, and the tribe's involvement is what has allowed this to happen. But they're hoping the early success of this research could pave the way for more permission to do this elsewhere. So I've also heard recently about a particular kind of invasive carp that's been causing a lot of damage and, and a lot of concern in rivers in Illinois. Um, and they've been trying really hard to keep that carp out of Lake Michigan. Is it working? It does seem to be working so far. We've found DNA on the other side of these barriers, um, but no actual fish. And we heard from Tammy Newcomb, who is informally known as the Carp Queen, but she's also the assistant director of the Michigan DNR. And she's been really involved in this big old billion dollar effort on the Illinois River near Joliet. It's called the Brandon Road Interbasin Project. It would be this new kind of barrier. It's a collaboration between Michigan, Illinois, and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. And it's kind of like this multi-layer blockade against these invasive carp swimming up the Illinois River and into Lake Michigan. A lot of those layers are layers we've already seen before. Things like bubble streams that the fish don't want to swim through, electric blockades, um, auditory deterrents, like sounds and frequencies that the fish don't like. But it would also include something called a flushing lock. That's pretty new. And this flushing lock would allow boats to pass through, but it would send these turbulent streams of water back down the river, allowing the vessel to pass through without any organisms getting past and swimming up to Lake Michigan. So it sounds like there are a lot of invasive species in the Great Lakes already. And it does sound like there is a lot being done to both mitigate the effects of the species that are here and to keep more species from entering the Great Lakes in the first place. But it all just has an air of feeling kind of inevitable. Um, like these efforts, despite spending a lot of money and a lot of time, more invasives keep coming into the Great Lakes. So is this all in vain? That's a good question. Tammy Newcomb actually brought that up. A constant refrain that I hear and that I think a lot of other people who work with invasive species here. Why spend all this money and time and resources when they're just going to get here anyway, when they're already here anyway, and they're just going to spread? But... Tammy made a good point, and she said that these systems buy us more time, and that time allows us to do a lot more research. When we have that research done, we know better ways to control and mitigate the spread of invasive species. And that's worthwhile in itself. Ellie, thanks. Thanks, Max. IPR's environment reporter, Ellie Katz. The Lowdown will return in a moment. Hey, it's Rand Abdel Fattah from NPR's Throughline podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? We're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Lowdown. I'm Max Copeland. Did you get out to see the trees this fall? I remember vividly the pop of the fall colors as I looked out the window over the lake one morning, 
The water's mirror-like surface and the golden glow of the early morning sun only served to accentuate the already outstanding reds, oranges, yellows, greens, and browns that were dancing together in an autumnal ensemble. But I digress. Suffice it to say, the leaves were great this year. And there are a lot of factors at play determining how and when they show their colors. As IPR's climate solutions reporter Izzy Ross tells us, researchers are just now starting to find out how climate change may be playing a role. Most trees in this patch of forest near Kingsley have yellow leaves. Some slowly drift down through the air. A short walk leads to a clearing on the edge of a cliff. Below, trees stretch to the horizon. Many are deciduous, with colors that range from pale yellow to bright orange to deep red. Rob and Tammy Saul are from central Michigan. They made their way up north to the high rollaway observation deck on this mid-October afternoon, looking at the Manistee River some 200 feet below. Today I'm noticing the oaks, all of the red oaks. Last week we were out and it was the maples, and this week it's the red oaks are just amazing. The sun breaks through the clouds, lighting up splotches of the landscape, visible for 15 miles from the observation deck. The trees are as colorful as ever. Looking at these leaves is a big part of the economy. Michigan sees a lot of leaf peeping money. And across the country, states bring in billions of dollars in fall tourism. Tammy Saul is one of those foliage enthusiasts. Definitely the scenery and how it changes from year to year. Um, We thought this was not going to be a great year for leaves, and it turned out to be. Turned out to be gorgeous. Yeah, this is one of the best years, 115 between Cadillac and Misik is just incredible. Several things determine what kind of fall we see. Daylight, temperature, and precipitation all affect the brilliance, timing, and duration of the colors. And a rapidly changing climate is making it harder to predict. Maddie Baroli works at the Northern Institute of Applied Climate Science and is based in Traverse City. She says daylight is the most predictable factor because it stays the same from year to year. So as there's less sunlight available, you know, tree leaves are not doing as much photosynthesizing sunlight into energy. And so they really reduce the amount of chlorophyll that they're producing. Chlorophyll is the pigment that gives leaves their green color. As the days get shorter and the temperature drops, trees slow photosynthesis and produce less chlorophyll. That green color recedes, revealing yellow, orange, and red pigments. Eventually, the leaves fall off. As the climate has heated up, the growing season has gotten longer, and autumn has gotten shorter. Over the past 50 years, autumns in northern Michigan have warmed by an average of 3 degrees Fahrenheit. Those warmer temperatures that we are experiencing and these longer growing seasons are sending a bit of a mixed message in terms of what compounds are being produced in the leaves at this time of year. Cool nights and sunny days can mean brighter colors, Warming temperatures can dull leaves and delay the peak season. Precipitation is another example of the range of impacts climate change can have on foliage. Drought and heat stress could make leaves drop before they change color. Too much rain will also disrupt their annual cycle. You know, with climate change, we can be both concerned about drought and extended dry periods, as well as uh, too much rain delivered in really heavy downpour events. 
Baroli says her organization is working with tribes, land management groups, and individuals to tackle research on fall foliage together, considering both on-the-ground observations and climate science. And then kind of feeding back in what their observations are into broader conversations with other land managers. So the point of all of that is so that we can then talk about how might we adapt and be proactive about what some of those impacts are. For now, people like Rob and Tammy Saul are still enjoying northern Michigan's autumns. The High Rollaway Observation Deck is one stop on their off-road vehicle trail ride. They've been taking trips like this for more than 20 years. Just enjoying the ride and the scenery <laughs> and being with a bunch of friends. We've got three of us riding together and just having a great time. But as temperatures increase and autumns get shorter, these days may be numbered. IPR's Izzy Ross out among the fall colors in Kingsley. This story comes to us through a partnership with Grist, a national media nonprofit focused on climate solutions and justice. All right, let's turn to see what else made news in Michigan this week. Industry watchers said the Detroit Big Three automakers made unprecedented concessions this week when they agreed to tentative contracts with the United Auto Workers Union. The agreements mean the six-week strike is coming to an end. All three car companies struck similar deals, including offering all workers 25% pay increases. Ford workers have already ratified their contract, but rank-and-file union members working for GM or Stellantis have yet to vote on their agreement. The Michigan Attorney General's office says efforts to prosecute state officials in the Flint water case are over. That's after the Michigan Supreme Court declined to hear a case that attempted to restore criminal charges against former Governor Rick Snyder. Justices had earlier declined to take a similar case after a lower court dismissed charges against seven other government officials. Meanwhile, the state of Michigan is taking steps to reduce potential lead exposure in schools and daycare centers. Governor Gretchen Whitmer recently signed legislation to require every school in Michigan to develop a drinking water management plan. A new independent report finds district officials could have prevented the deadly shooting at Oxford High School on November 30th, 2021. The report by the company Guidepost Solutions says the drawings, conduct, and statements made by the then 15-year-old Ethan Crumbly should have prompted the school's own threat assessment policies. If that had happened, it would have allowed the school principal to examine Crumbly's backpack, where he would have found the gun before it was used to kill four students and wound seven other people. Instead, the report finds former school superintendent Tim Thorne and two former assistant administrators failed to alert the principal. The report also notes that no school administrators say it was their responsibility to oversee the policies, and several school officials, including the two who met with Crumbly and his parents the day of the shooting, refused to cooperate with the investigation. That's it for the Up North Lowdown this week. I'm Max Copeland. We had contributions from Ellie Katz and Izzy Ross. Ed Ronco helped edit this episode. Music by Blue Dot Sessions.
Also, don't forget to keep an eye on this feed for bonus midweek episodes of the Up North Lowdown. Every Wednesday, we'll meet local artists in a new series called the Fresh Coast Creatives. This week, we'll meet artist Jamie John and learn how art helped him deal with the loss of his grandfather. Again, that bonus episode of The Lowdown, available this Wednesday. Next week on The Lowdown, a proposed change for recreational anglers seems small from the outside, but as IPR's Ellie Katz reports, within the fishing community, there's a heated debate about what's right. That's next week. Until then, enjoy the autumn in northern Michigan. Walking through the woods, there are yellow leaves falling down. Almost like it's snowing. The ground is carpeted with red, bright red and yellow leaves. Some brown pine needles. Have a great weekend. This week, a musical celebration of one of the most beloved gothic horror video game series of all time, Castlevania. We'll hear selections from original soundtracks, plus arrangements featuring orchestras and choirs, jazz combo, metal guitars, and more. I'm Keith Brown, inviting you to join me for a Castlevania extravaganza, this week on Gameplay. You can stream full episodes of Gameplay on demand and view playlists at GameplayShow.org.